welcome you. Um, so for the last five weeks or so, we've been uh, going through the book of John, the very last uh, two chapters of the book of John, to study what did the resurrection mean to the uh, first believers, first Christians. Um, Jesus, uh, just as resurrections do not happen today, uh, at least not, not that I know of, um, resurrections did not happen um, back in those days as well. Um, and the disciples did not expect Jesus, even though he said to them that he was going to rise after three days. Uh, they did not expect him to actually rise. Or it was so elusive that they didn't, it didn't register in their heads that that was actually going to happen. Um, yet for 2,000 years, the church has put all its eggs in the resurrection basket. For 2,000 years, the church has been running around telling people Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. That is to say, if someone can show beyond a reasonable doubt that Jesus did not rise from the dead, our whole religion is sham. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that we are of all people most to be pitied if Jesus did not rise from the dead. And as far as I'm concerned, no one has shown that the resurrection really did not happen. Do you know that? Did you know that? Maybe you've never thought about it like that. That Christianity stands and falls at this crossroads at, at the resurrection. This is uh, uh, N.T. Wright talking about the resurrection says, the resurrection does two things. It explains why the church started anyway. How could the church have started after these disciples were so dejected? It must be the fact that what Jesus said he would do, he did. Not only that, the resurrection is the linchpin or, or the spokes. If you know how the bike works, it's the spokes that holds the whole thing together. Take it out and you have no Christianity. You have no hope of future glory. You have nothing. We have of all people most to be pitied. So if you are going to reject Christianity, I implore you, I encourage you, reject Christianity at its strongest point. Reject Christianity because you have re realized that the resurrection is a sham. And if you're going to stand on Christianity and accept it, I implore you, there is no other stronger evidence for your hope for future glory other than the resurrection. See, a lot of people reject the church because they've been hurt by um, church people. And that's, that's a real thing. That happens. A lot of people have left the church because they've been hurt. And if you're here today, even in spite of all the hurts, my encouragement to you is don't look at the people that hurt you. Ask yourself, is it true that Jesus rose from the dead? Because if it is, it changes everything. For the last five weeks, like I said, we've been trying to communicate from the pulpit, from here, that Jesus said he is the son of God, and he confirmed it by rising from the dead. And it was a real death that he died and a real resurrection that he rose. And while for the Christian, this is good news, for those who reject this reality, there are going to be consequences, eternal consequences. God 
The Son of God has shown up into our world, bringing us salvation and hope, and we've rejected him. If we reject the resurrection. The Apostle Paul, speaking about this topic in uh, Acts 17, verse 30, says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance for all by rising him from the dead. Now, you might think Paul is writing this hundreds and hundreds of years after the reality, but no. Tops, this was about 50 years after the resurrection happened. Again, if the resurrection did not happen, all our hope for the future, all our confidence of seeing God, all our assurance of salvation, and all our hard work to be better people is laughable because we are wasting our time. In our passage today, we find that Jesus, the Lord, the creator of the universe, has indeed revealed himself. So let's look at the passage, uh, and then I'll pray, and then I'll um, speak a little more about this topic. John chapter 21, verse 1 to 14, I'm reading from the ESV, and I really encourage you all to get up, stand up. says, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon, Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two others, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to hurl in it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out of the, on the land, they saw the char- a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that You have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and handed and hurled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of them, none of the disciples dared ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and, and, and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, this was now the third time that Jesus has re- had revealed, Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was risen from the dead. 
he may have received. Based on a true story, uh, one of our favorite pastimes at our house is to watch movies. Uh, and Gouda and I have been married uh, for about, so next, next week we'll be married for five years. So we spent our la- first four years trying to figure out what movies we like. Um, and it's been really hard <laughs> uh, because I don't like the kind of movies she likes. Um, she's more open-minded and will endure my movies. Um, but we have realized that we like the, the based on a true story genre. Um, but what ends up happening after we watch the movies is we just sit there in silence for like 10 minutes surfing the web, web to confirm whether what we just saw was true. <laughs> and then we'll argue, how do you know that's true? How do you, who wrote this? How do you confirm, right? Um, and... And usually, we'll spend maybe 20, 30 more minutes confirming whether what the person is saying is true based on what, right? Um, and sometimes, the movie is so good, we don't care. We don't care if, if it was all fabricated because the movie is so good. And let me ask you, is, is that how we treat the Gospels? Is it so good we don't care if it's fabricated? We don't care if... If the things really that they said happen, happen. Is that how we treat the Gospels? Mostly fabricated lies, but not be, which might not be true, but sound so good. Who cares? According to the resurrection, according to all the disciples who were martyred for this truth, that's not the case. They were not coming up with fabrications. Peter would say, we did not follow cleverly devised stories. John would say, we saw him. We touched him. We fellowshiped with him. C.S. Lewis, the author of the children's series, The Chronicles of Narnia, in his essay titled, um, which I really encourage you to look it up, um, it's called The Fern Seed and the Elephant, shows how <coughs> people are happy to read the Gospels as fiction. Um, Fiction that was written 2,000 years ago. Even though the people who were actually writing the Gospels never said they were writing fiction. They said these were actually eyewitness accounts. Now you might ask, what are they? So the disciples were later called witnesses. And the question is, what were they witnesses of? I'll tell you this. The thing that we're running around the world telling people they're witnesses of is the resurrection. That is what they were witnesses of. This is why Christianity started. This is what Christianity took off on, the resurrection. Jesus Christ actually coming back to life. So C.C.S. Lewis says, it seems like um, these people who criticize the resurrection feel like they know more than the people who said they were there having front row seats. And this is what Lewis says. These men and women... Um, ask me to believe they can read between the lines of the old text. Yeah. The evidence is their obvious inability to read in any sense, any worth, any worth, any sense worth discussing the lines themselves. They claim to see fern seas and cannot see an elephant 10 yards away, uh, away in broad daylight. John, the author of, um, of, of this gospel, the passage we're talking about, knows that people do not easily, people would not easily believe that Jesus rose from the dead. It doesn't happen. 
It does not happen that somebody dies and comes back to life. It's hard truth to swallow. Yet his aim is to show us that Jesus really did reveal himself to his disciples after. And if you, were, if you think the disciples were just a bunch of really clever dudes that sat down and came up with these, um, these things, read the lines. These guys were fishermen. They were fishermen, uneducated fishermen. All right, so what do the lines say? My title for the sermon today is, It is the Lord. Uh, and the main point, the one thing I want you to take away with, if you don't remember anything at all, is simply this. Jesus Christ revealed himself to his disciples. Jesus Christ revealed himself to his disciples. I have three points. The first point is this. How did Jesus, or how Jesus revealed himself? The second point is, where did Jesus reveal himself and then the third point is, why did Jesus reveal himself? So my first point, how did Jesus reveal himself? This is not the first time that Jesus has revealed himself. His disciples actually said, this is indeed the third time, according to verse 14. In verse 2, we see that he appeared to seven of the disciples. John intentionally lists the seven for us. And this is not the first time they had seen him do a miracle. John has actually already told us about a miracle that he did um, with fish in chapter 6. And Pastor Stan showed us two weeks ago that John intentionally picked seven signs, okay, um, two weeks ago. This is also not the first time they've seen Jesus do a miracle with fish, like I said. Um, the last time, it was in, verse, uh, in chapter 6. And in there, he talks about how 12 baskets were left. What's my point? Well, for the Jews, there were some numbers that were significant, okay? And if, you, if, you're, if you're not paying attention, you sort of miss that in this passage, right? John tells us this is the third time Jesus revealed himself to the disciples, and there were seven people there. Just like in America, the number 13 has some significance, and the number 666 has some significance. And if you're a basketball fan, you know number 23 has significance, right? If you're a soccer fan, you know number nine, Ronaldo, has significance, right? For the Jews, the number three, seven, and 12 are very significant. So for Jesus to reveal himself a third time to seven disciples is John's way of saying Jesus has completely revealed himself to his disciples. So part of my first point is that the disciples were thoroughly acquainted with Judaism. They knew what they were talking about. They were Jews. After that, the degree to which these guys talk about fishing and boats and lakes and, and seas and se read the Gospels. It's like a sea ferry. It's just water everywhere. Because they were fishermen. They were fishermen. And Jesus is working with them where they are. He meets Peter, where? At the sea, doing what he does best. And later Jesus would say, I will make you fishers of men. Because he understood that. <laughs> this whole story is illustrating for us the importance of Jesus working with these guys. Not to just fish, right? But how to be fishers of men. 
Uh, you could say, well, these were, you know, uh, really crafty fishermen who, you know, somehow decided one day to come up with a religion. Um, it's harder to believe that than it is to just simply believe that these guys were fishermen who God revealed himself to. Try it. Arthur Lindsay, um, Arthur, uh, Arthur Lindsay in his article, Can the Gospels Be Trusted, says this, Inventing the character of Jesus will involve a miracle. And then he quotes a few um, unbelievers who, who didn't actually believe the Gospels by saying, so Theodore Parker says this, <laughs> It takes a Newton to for, forge a Newton. What kind of man, what man could fabricate, uh, fabricate a Jesus? No one but a Jesus. And then he quotes Rousseau. Rousseau says this, The gospel has marks of truth so great, so striking, so perfectly inimitable, inimitable, I think that's the word, which means something hard to imitate, okay, that the inventor would have to be more astonishing than the hero. Think about that. The person who created Jesus, if somebody did create Jesus, that person should be worshipped, not Jesus, because they are amazing. They created a whole religion that 2,000 years later, people are still sitting around following. And then he quotes uh, John Stark Mills. It is of no use to say that Christ, as exhibited in the Gospels, is, is not historical. And that we know not how much of what is admirable, admirable has been uh, superadded by the tradition of his followers. Who among his disciples or among their proselytes was capable of inventing the life and character revealed in the Gospels? Look at the people that Jesus were, that apparently followed Jesus. Not very impressive. It would make no sense for them to, to create a religion and then make themselves so unimpressive. <laughs> Which brings me to my second point. Where did Jesus reveal himself? The amount of details of places and people, seemingly just irrelevant information that we have, shows us that this, has, this is not fiction. Right? In fiction, so today in fiction, right, uh, someone might walk into a room and the car, a cat might be purring, right, a dog might be running around, just seemingly irrelevant things, right? And, you know, that's fiction. That's not how fiction was written back then. You won't just find random things happening that have no relevance. For someone to tell you fiction, they made sure that they gave you relevant things to the fiction. And a lot of times we read the gospel assuming that these things are happening because the authors are trying to embellish the story to make it sound more real. But they were actually telling us what happens. This is what I mean. Jesus tells, uh, John tells us, these things happen in the northern part of a region. Oh, sorry, I didn't have a map. I should have had a map. But anyway, in, in Israel, Israel is divided back then into three parts, right? There's Judea, there's Samaria in the middle, and then there's Jerusalem down south, right? Um, and this, these things happen in the northern region. Specifically, John tells us happened um, at the Sea of Tiberias in verse 1. The Sea of Tiberias. This is, John is the only person that calls the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Tiberias. <laughs> Everywhere else, it's called the Sea of Galilee. 
for two years now, I've been trying to convince the, 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 my D group kids that, hey, uh, we have party in the park at Mullins Park. Come to Mullins Park for party in the park. And the kids will ask me, are you going to pick us up? I'm like, why do I have to pick you up from Mullins Park? They don't know what Mullins Park is because they don't call it Mullins Park. They call it up top. So even though they live right here, that is not what they call it. So for you to be an outsider and just come and say, well, let's go to Marlins Park, they don't know what you're talking about. Unless you're actually from the place. You don't know some of the nuances that people use to call places. But John is telling us, we also call this place the Sea of Tiberias. Again, totally irrelevant information, unless that's really what happens. They call the place the Sea of Tiberias. You might know it as Galilee on the map, just like how you know this part. If you type in up top on Google Maps, it won't come up. I'm telling you that right now. <laughs> type Mullins Park, it'll show you exactly where Mullins Park is. Arthur Lindsay says again, um, the importance of eyewitnesses. When when the Gospels were written, there were eyewitnesses still alive who could have corrected any mistakes by saying, that didn't happen, or it, it didn't happen that way. The apostles were key witnesses who had intimate acquaintance with what Jesus said and did. Sorry, I'll, I'll, so another thing that we, another mistake that we make is, see, most of us can even remember our I can sometimes not even remember my mom's phone number, right? But we assume that's what happened with these disciples. You have to meet a Muslim, right, who is trying to memorize the entire Quran. To write. People take words very seriously back then, right? So for someone to be a rabbi's disciple and for the rabbi to be speaking and for them not to hang on to every word so that they can remember it just the way he said it, <laughs> It's just commonplace. That's what you did as a disciple, right? So we wonder, well, these guys might have just sat around and said and just came. No. They hang on to every word that Jesus said. Not only that, it's part of their culture. You hanged on to the words of people because you're not going to write it down. And a lot of times we come to the Gospels with our own 21st century preconceived notions about how could these guys really know this because they knew that they were responsible as his disciples to transmit these informations to those who will follow them. Not only that, Jesus literally tells them in John chapter 16, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will bring to memory everything I told you. Family, you have more confidence in your Bible than you should have more confidence in your Bible than you know. Because those are the very words of God. Let me just go to my second point. Well, my last point. I'm out of time. Why did Jesus reveal himself? Okay, this is, this is very exciting. Um, it's very hard to synthesize the end of the Gospels, right, between when Jesus rose and Pentecost. Because, you know, different, different guys say different things in that. Some of them say they were supposed to stay in Jerusalem. Said, some said supposed to stay in, uh, in Galilee. That's a fern seed. <laughs> The big fact is that they all confirmed that he rose from the dead, okay? But it's harder to see exactly where they're supposed to be, okay? Um, 
right? He's, we already know that Jesus, their leader, is dead, right? Uh, we already know that he'd appeared to them twice. And some individuals, Pete, uh, uh, the apostle Peter, uh, Paul tells us, at one point he appeared to more than 500 people at once. Now you can say they all had bad lunch, but 500 people, that's a stretch. And you know it. <laughs> 500 people at once. So Jesus appears to them after he dies and resurrects, and he tells them, hey, um, <coughs> stay in Jerusalem. Um, the Holy Spirit is going to come. And in the meantime, what do they do, right? And I think they are trying to figure out what to do. And the passage that we looked at is what they were trying to do. Um, and they're probably asking each other, what do we do? We're waiting, right? They're humans. They get hungry, right? Not only that, they're fishermen. So what do they do? They do what they can do best. They go fishing. After that, seems like Peter, who, if you read the gospel again, seems to have all the answers, has become their leader. It's very obvious. Every time the disciples are listed, he's the leader. He's at the head. And I think this is why. So in Matthew chapter 16, so this is, it seems like Peter is the first person to actually recognize Jesus for who he actually is. Matthew 16 and Mark chapter 8 confirms this. Luke chapter 19 as well. Jesus asked a very important question. Who do people say I am? Because that matters to Jesus, right? It matters to Jesus. What are people saying I am? So all the disciples are shooting off. Elijah, John the Baptist. Some says, you know, you're a prophet. Jesus asked, who do, who, but who do you say? I've been with you for three years. Who do you say I am? Peter opens his mouth and says, you are the son of the living God. And Jesus confirms it and says, yes. I am the son of the living God. And flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. But my father from heaven did. So Peter seems to be at the head, right? And, you know, but there's a tradition that the disciples, most of them were actually teenagers. Uh, this is, I don't know if you can confirm that. But when you think about it, you, you know, some of the behavior, right? But Peter, Peter seemed the only person that is mentioned as having a mother-in-law is Peter. Um, so I think Peter is actually older than all of them. I, again, I, I can't, there are a lot of things I can confirm in the Bible. This I can't say. Um, but it seems like Peter is, is the leader. He's probably the older one. So when he says you know, Jesus is dead. He said he's going to come send us the Holy Spirit. And, you know, they're just sitting around probably staring at one another. What do we do? What do we do? Peter says, I'm going fishing. They're like, we're going with you. Right? You must know what we should do. Peter, Peter, the leader, goes out, tries to fish. And what do you know? They fish all night and get nothing. Absolutely nothing. I mean, you got to imagine how Peter feels. They're all looking to him, Right? They're all wondering, okay, hold on, Jesus is gone. This guy can't even help us catch fish. Hold on, what's going on? The timing of this passage is everything. Jesus shows up right when day is breaking. Again, you have to read the book of John to get this. John does a lot with light and darkness. <coughs> a lot with light and darkness. Nicodemus comes at dark, right? 
when it's dark. The disciples uh, walk, run to the tomb when it's right, right when it's daybreak, right? Um, the man who was blind, he does a ton with that. So right when day is breaking, these guys are exhausted emotionally, physically, spiritually. They are wiped. Right when day is breaking, Jesus shows up at the shore. And he asks them, children, do you have any food? If you notice in our scripture reading, when Jesus asked Peter, hey, have you caught anything, right? Peter is like, no, we haven't caught anything. And Jesus is like, do this. And Peter is arguing. He's like, oh, we've worked all day. Um, what does Peter do here? He doesn't say a word. These guys are absolutely desperate. They've been working all night with nothing to show for it. So when a stranger comes to the shore and is like, cast the net to the right side and you'll catch something, what do you do? Out of desperation, you cast your net to the right. And what do you know? 153 fish out of nowhere just jump into your net. This is the gospel, y'all. Just at the right time, when we are exhausted physically, emotionally, spiritually, Jesus shows up. And look at Peter's reaction. Again, like the timing of this is everything. What does Peter do? As soon as he hears John, and he's not the one that recognized this, John recognizes, yo, it's the Lord. Peter puts on his clothes, jump into the water. These are men that have been working all night trying to keep this boat afloat, have nothing to show for their hard work. Jesus shows up. Someone tells Peter, it's the Lord. He puts on his raggedy clothes. Don't, don't miss that as well. He puts on his clothes. He realizes it's the Lord. And swims a whole football field to see the Lord. His Lord. Your Lord. I don't know where you are today. I don't, I don't know the thing that's draining you. I don't know whether you're tired physically or emotionally or spiritually. It's the Lord. And he calls us to fly to him. Imagine this. Peter just heard the Son of God, the creator of the universe, is at the shore. If you heard the creator, the Son of the universe, is at your doorstep, would you drag your feet? Would you, would you contemplate what to do? Would you wait? I think the other guys, you know, they have the right says, well, the Lord will probably still wait, right? We have 153 fish. You know, we might want to bring it. I mean, at least to honor the fact that he just helped us catch all this fish, right? But Peter being Peter, it's the Lord. Swims a whole hundred yards without a word. This is a changed man. This is a man that the Holy Spirit has been working in. He's exhausted. And everyone is looking to him. He knows it. But he knows he has no resource in himself. And so Jesus shows up to the shore and actually catches the fish for them. This is our Lord. Jesus has revealed himself to his disciples. Let us follow him. Let us fly to him. 
just at the right time, he shows up. Amen? All right, let me pray. Lord, you're good and your steadfast love endures forever. Lord, you did not choose, I mean, we did not choose you, but you chose us. You are the one who reveals yourself to us. Lord, I pray that you would give us spiritual eyes to see that you are the Lord. You are the Son of God who has revealed himself to us. In Jesus' name, amen.